Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Metro Vancouver continues its year of hyperdiversity as the region's visible minority population is 54%. So why do our positions of power and authority still look like 1970s Canada? Plus, Premier-elect David Eby joins us to discuss his first 100 days in office, plus his visit to the Lieutenant Governor's residence today. And Avengers Assemble! Director James Cameron offends Marvel fans as he comes out swinging against superhero movies. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin talking about Metro Vancouver and its population. Today's Stats Canada confirmed what we're already seeing. Vancouver has truly entered an era of hyper-diversity. With our immigration levels at well past 400,000 new immigrants per year allowed into Canada, there is no such thing as the changing face of Canada. It has changed. Uh, Today's Stats Canada release showed that a majority of Metro Vancouver residents now identify as a visible minority. According to a terminology used by Stats Canada in the 2021 census, data from the census shows that 54% of the people in the region identified as a visible minority, up from 49% in 2016. That increase was predominantly due to 154,000 new immigrants who settled into Metro Vancouver in the past five years. And of course, our largest non-white ethnic groups are Chinese, which is about 19%, South Asian, about 14%, and Filipino, which is 5%. Uh, the uh, Vancouver community with the greatest diversity, certainly the, the ones identifying as visible minority in 2021, is Richmond with a visible minority population of 80%. Burnaby is second at 67.8%, um, and Surrey is at 67.1%, so very similar. Burnaby and Surrey, Coquitlam at 56%, Vancouver at 54%. Uh, so significant amount of diversity throughout uh, our communities. Delta at 45% as a look at the numbers. So significant changes uh, what we've been witnessing over the last couple of decades, but what does it mean? What does it mean in regards to reflection of our communities in positions of power and authority, whether that be a courtroom or a provincial legislature? Joining me now to talk about uh, diversity and what it means within the Canadian family is Ujil Desange, a former Premier of British Columbia. Ujil, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. It's an interesting topic in that we, we all see the changes uh, uh, when you're out walking in the streets, whether it's your, uh, your job, wherever it may be, we see this diversity, we see the changes that are there. What do the numbers say to you today? Well, the numbers um, tell me, um, based on our need for people uh, to come in and work so that there is a tax base to support the population, that the... Um, the, the immigration is going to continue at these rates. Um, and uh, it seems to me that, uh, you know, give it another 50 to 100 years, the whole world is going to look like uh, uh, one sort of place where everybody's all mingled and mixed and merged. And uh, and and that is where, in fact, we um, are already, in a sense, we are on, on way we're on the way to being uh, that place uh, in the next 50 to 100 years. Uh, because if we keep um, wanting immigrants, needing immigrants, mm-hmm. um, the immigrants, um, you know, vast majority of the population of the world um, is uh, 
people of visible minority. And if we want immigration from those countries, then the number of people increase. Um, and and we are um, obviously lagging in terms of the representation, uh, surely in terms of the numbers of people that live in these communities that are of color. Mm-hmm. We've seen a slight uptick in this election cycle, and every election cycle is a little different. In your mind, I mean, you, you were um, a lawyer for many years. Uh, you've been in the provincial legislature and the federal one as well. Why do we have such difficulty reflecting that diversity in our positions of power and authority, not just the legislature, but in courtrooms, uh, in boardrooms? Why are we still hitting a wall? Well, I mean, you know, when I first came to Canada in the in the 60s and then in the 70s and 80s, we used to hear uh, that, you know, obviously people need to be qualified and uh, that those kinds of reasons were being given. Um, but I think we've been around a long time now. Uh, the diversity has been here for a long, long time. And um, one thing we need to understand is that um, one need not be disappointed because there's usually a lag. Um, uh, happens uh, in, in the way the uh, communities are represented. If, if the community comes uh, of age uh, in a particular place, um, it takes uh, that community to be represented uh, uh, some time before it comes of age, um, you know, politically and otherwise uh, in different places of power and position. Um, we have, uh, in fact, made progress in Vancouver. You have many councillors uh, who are visible minority. You have the mayor for the first time in the history of the city that's a visible minority mayor. Um, and uh, and uh, we've had MLAs uh, belonging to different uh, visible minority groups uh, and MPs. Uh, that's happening. That's changing. And those numbers are increasing. And they're not at par with the uh, percentage of the population in various centers. Um, But, you know, ultimately, uh, you also have to think about the overall population. The overall population of Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, 75% is non-visible minority, generally speaking, 25 is. So, you know, hit or miss, if you have 20 to 25% people elected who are or in positions of power who are of visible minority, um, that should kind of, you know, be okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to significant change, 400,000 immigrants a year is significant. I recall, uh, I think even when uh, you were Attorney General back in the 1990s, we used to debate 225,000 people coming to this country. We're now at four, 450,000 per year. Do you think uh, we can absorb, and what I mean by absorb is new immigrants coming to this country, and immigrants all change countries, they bring customs and, and new ideas and all those types of things. But it, you also have to have the ability as a society to absorb that many people coming in, whether it be through uh, services, whether it be to just uh, housing. Do you think we're doing the, uh, we've done enough in regards to making it easier for people to move to this country, but also the ability for a society to be able to take that many people so quickly, year after year? Well, I think the housing shortage uh, tells us that we're not doing a very good job of absorbing that need Mm -hmm. or satisfying that need. Um, And that is obviously partly being driven by uh, the immigration and the immigrants that are coming in. You see, in the old times, uh, most of the immigrants were um, working class, um, 
poor people uh, upping themselves from different countries to come to places like Canada. Uh, and now you have a class of people, um, not all of them, but th- there's a significant number that have the means to come in and buy housing right away. And uh, so we're not making, uh, we're not uh, keeping up with that need and the growing need because of the growing population. Um, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have immigration. It just simply means if we need immigration for meeting our own, um, you know, uh, human resources needs, uh, we should then be doing more to ensure that they have health care, housing, and other supports so that people don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, it's, it is an odd question, uh, but uh, is it, are we doing enough to assimilate immigrants in your mind? Uh, I mean, you know, these communities are so big, Chinese, South Asian, Filipino, growing Korean communities, so many of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think... Yeah. And one of the reasons I say this is, you know, you could literally as South Asians now get up in the morning and not have to speak English all day. You could get your news uh, from South Asian radio stations, your banking, your groceries, whatever it may be. I'm Not that you don't need to speak English, but I'm saying, are we doing enough to assimilate those very people into this country? Well, I, I think that you know, the word is integration. It used to be mm. anyway. They, these words keep changing. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, from my perspective, um, I think economically we're integrating everyone that's coming in because everybody that's coming in uh, has to make a living. Mm-hmm. So the economic needs drive people to go seek employment and work wherever they can find work. I think that the, the example you give is quite correct. I mean, if you are, um, uh, let's say, an Indo-Canadian person, a Punjabi person, you, you come to the Vancouver airport, you get a cabbie sometimes who speaks Punjabi, then you go to a Punjabi home, you go to Punjabi doctors and, and Punjabi nurses and Punjabi insurance chaps and Punjabi realtors and Punjabi construction sites. You don't need to speak a word of English. In that sense, I think we're not integrating people as well. One of the difficulties I think we face is that if people don't pick up the language and they don't need to pick up the language, they don't pick up the values that go with that language, the values, the ideas, and and how we as a society conduct ourselves. So if somebody is coming from a distant place uh, is obviously very different in terms of the cultural values and political values and the like, we're not doing a very good job of integrating them. In fact, one of the one of the uh, complaints I've had of the politicians and public leadership in the mm-hmm. past has been that when we invite immigrants into this country, that's absolutely wonderful and needed, of course, uh, to meet our own human resources um, needs. But we don't expect of those people to change. We don't we don't say to them that they should change in terms of the values, the political values, the, dem- the democracy, the freedom mm-hmm. that we enjoy this, in this country, the way we treat each other in this country. Um, you know, uh, it, we, we, we don't make them aware of our history, whether it's how we dealt with the First Nations, uh, whether how we dealt with each other, whether we had voting rights or not, whether we had right to practice in professions or not. Many of the new immigrants, uh, we don't make an effort to teach them our history and our values, our culture. And I think in that sense, we're not integrating uh, people as quickly and as well as we need to um, in the larger society. Yeah. Well, Joel, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Uh, fascinating uh, numbers and uh, pre- always appreciate uh, your knowledge and context of these issues as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.
I'm talking about uh, Vancouver's diversity. New Stats Canada numbers came out and showed that 54% of the people living in Metro Vancouver identify as a visible minority. So the first time we've been over 50%, that's up from 49% in 2016, the last time there was a census. Uh, The increase was predominantly due to 155,000 new immigrants settling in Metro Vancouver uh, in the past five years. And of course, the numbers shouldn't be too surprising. Uh, 80% visible minority um, population in Richmond alone, followed by communities like Burnaby uh, and uh, Surrey at 67%, Vancouver's at 54%. But you see that uh, diversity that's there. But one of the things we talked about, and joining me now is our contributor, John Jang. John, welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. Uh, your thoughts uh, on the overall uh, numbers and uh, some of the things that uh, uh, Premier Desange, former Premier Desange, has been talking about. Uh, I mean, you know, I still uh, get frustrated sometimes where you don't see that diversity in our council chambers and our legislatures. But as Ujil said, mm-hmm. the, you know, sometimes these things lag the numbers and that we're probably going to see more of it moving forward. Yeah, I, I think we are starting to see a little bit more of that. Um, I, I, I do think that there are individuals who come from different backgrounds in certain public offices uh, that make a lot of sense. The elected officials as well. You look at Bowen Ma. I mean, that's just one name. Yep. Uh, Ravi Kalon. Like the NDP have obviously been a lot more diverse than I think some of the other parties in BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does raise that question, Jazz. Like when you look at the numbers, you know, 54% of all individuals in the, in the Metro Vancouver area being visible minorities, why don't we have anything close to that in terms of percentages when we look at politics. It feels like there's been a discrepancy there for decades. And, you know, listening to Mr. Desange talking about um, integration and all of that makes sense. But I also wonder if if just systematically, like the opportunities haven't been there, but times are finally starting to change. Yeah, I think they're getting there. I mean, it, it, there's always been sort of this unwritten rule, certainly many years ago, that you'd run South Asians in Surrey, you run those of Chinese heritage in Richmond, and you pick and choose between two of them in South Vancouver, and that was about it. And the rest of it was uh, other regions that will be generally people who are of European descent. Now, that is changing. I mean, you look at uh, some of the writings there. We have a South Asian uh, in, in Vernon uh, that has run and won. Uh, you saw a South Asian mayor in my, my hometown of Williams Lake, where I grew up. I um, mean, you look at the, the mayors of Edmonton and Calgary, both of South Asian descent. And I use South Asians as an example, but we need greater Korean representation, Filipino representation. I think where politics has been is you don't necessarily need to put these individuals in ridings where you probably have a higher proportion of, of that community. And I think the political class has been doing that in BC for far too long. And I think that we're mm-hmm. finally getting to the point where we can finally talk about, okay, why can't you run somebody of, let's say, uh, of Chinese descent uh, in downtown Vancouver? That shouldn't be an issue anymore. And I think yeah. some of the parties have just been slower in, in moving. And it's just like any organization. Sometimes people fear change. And that's part of it as well. Uh, the NDP uh, had to work at it. I mean, they, they got uh, shellacked in 2000 won by the BC Liberals. They were in the wilderness for 16 years. And I think they finally got serious about it. And and they have gotten there because of that. The BC Liberals are now struggling through that now. And hopefully they'll get there as well. I mean, look at look at Surrey today. It's still, I mean, there's a South Asian population of was 35%, 40%. They don't have a South Asian mayor, not saying that Brenda Locke can't do the job or Doug McCallum or anybody else. But you would think that sometimes even in those communities, people are held back because of infighting. Uh, People can't unite under a a candidate. 
mean, look at Rishi Sunak. He came from the Conservative Party in the UK and became prime minister. But that was David Cameron, a previous uh, prime minister, who made it an issue that they're going to start reflecting modern uh, United Kingdom. But that took five or six years to get to that point. And part of it was putting minority candidates in ridings that are generally viewed as safe uh, and, and then going from there. And if they get elected, put them in prominent positions and they will sink or swim based on their talents. But you do that over five or six or seven years. That's where you see success, but it takes time. And that's where I think something like the BC Liberals are struggling through that right now, and other parties do as well. But it is frustrating, but I think I agree with what Rajul says. At the end of the day, this the numbers may lag with the numbers. The numbers tell us something. Uh, our society reflecting that takes time. And I think over the next five, ten years, we'll see a lot more of it, not just in politics, but in, when, we, when, we, when we send judges to, to make decisions in our courtrooms, in our boardrooms, uh, we do hit a glass ceiling when it comes to female representation as well. So there's not, it's not just ethnic minorities. But it's, it, we're getting there. It's just sometimes very frustrating sure. just waiting or to see that change. And I think you hear that from a lot of minority communities and underrepresented groups or, or indigenous communities, another example as well. That's why I think it's important to keep talking about this stuff and looking at the numbers. So uh, I appreciate your time, my friend. But One of the things that we've also uh, been relying on are facts and figures from Stats Canada in regards to Canadians and their grocery prices. Canadians, according to Stats Canada, are paying nearly 10% more for groceries than they were the previous year. Nearly 1 in 10 Canadians said that they've experienced food insecurity in their homes in the past 12 months. Joining me now to talk about um, food insecurity and some of the challenges our own food banks were having is David Long, CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. David, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me back on the show. Give me a snapshot of what you're seeing uh, today and now uh, with your with the food bank uh, as we still deal with the issue of inflation, food costs. How is the uh, food bank faring? Um, well, we're, first of all, we're very fortunate with the, we have a, amazing donors that, that support the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Uh, but we are we're in dire times. It's uh, we're registering approximately a thousand uh, new clients a month right now. Uh, and we've done that for like, the last three or four months. So uh, there's a lot of people needing help. And you know, the raise in the bank rate today, and I can only imagine what's uh, what's coming our way in the, in the next coming weeks. Um, is there a, a demographic profile of who is signing up with the food bank? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we have data on, on who would be signing up for the food bank. Um, you know, a lot of our clients um, in, in the last month, 31% of our new clients were actually uh, students. Uh, they're having a tough time on campus affording regular things. And I think what we are going to see, um, actually tomorrow is the launch of the annual hunger count uh, for, from Food Banks Canada. And I think what we are going to see, what we are certainly seeing in, in Vancouver, and I'm, I'm quite sure it's going to be in the report, is uh, a significant increase in the number of uh, food bank clients across the country that are actually employed, um, which is a sort of a startling new trend that we're seeing. And so this would be, uh, I think, often described as the working poor, people who are working full-time or working many hours and that they still require the help of the food bank. Absolutely. Uh, you know, people are shocked when I tell them, uh, people registering for the food bank, we have retired nurses, we have retired teachers. Uh, it's literally the cost of living, the cost of food, the cost of housing, all of the usual problems that we hear. It's, when you say retired uh, public sector workers, teachers and nurses, th- that's a relatively new phenomenon in the past year? Uh, in the last couple of years, you know, um, certainly uh, it was a shock when we, we, when we realized that. But the, the, the trend of working people that are needing uh, the assistance of the food bank, and, you know, 
to be blunt, I hate the term working poor. These are hardworking people that are just trying to do the best they can. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had a case uh, maybe a couple of months ago of a, a gentleman who's a single dad, uh, and his rent had just gone up about 15 to 20%, and he just couldn't make ends meet anymore. He works a full-time job. He's got kids, and, you know, um, luckily we're there to help people. Oh, wow. When you were saying that uh, there's a sign-up of um, students, students that you're seeing at the food bank, uh, are they uh, students that uh, born and raised in Canada, or are we talking about international students? Uh, we're talking about both, but we, we are seeing a lot of international students coming mm-hmm. uh, to, the univer- to the universities. Um, you know, we help, uh, we help a couple of universities uh, with our community agency partner program that we do. Um, but, uh, but certainly uh, when you see... Uh, 31% of your 1,000 clients are, are sort of students, whether local or international. That's a, that's a concern as well. I know international students work, and I think they, uh, recently there's been some change in regards to the amount of hours that they can work. Uh, but it's still, at this point, you're still seeing a, a growth in those students and, and international students specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely we are. And, you know, and it's, you know, I'm glad to see a, hopefully a, a positive change coming. I think they were limited to approximately 20 hours of work a week, mm-hmm. uh, which, which really doesn't cover very much. And I think you know, a lot of these kids or these students are, would work more if they could. So mm-hmm. hopefully it's a positive change. Fingers crossed. Uh, and now those who are listening uh, to our conversation, what can they do? Where can they donate uh, either uh, dollars or drop off food? Uh, is there a website that they can go to? Uh, absolutely. Our, our website uh, for, for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank uh, is foodbank.bc.ca. Um, there's an online donation form there. Um, if people uh, can't afford to, to do a financial donation, then please consider sort of maybe coming and signing up, helping just volunteering. We have a lot of fun when we're, when we're in the front lines helping people. Um, but we actually have stopped accepting uh, public donations of food. Um, because we'd rather have the we'd rather have the cash donation or the financial donation because of our buying power. Then we can actually buy exactly what we want and the sort of the healthy, nutritious food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. David, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to chatting with you soon, and I hope some of these trends uh, can be reversed sooner rather than later. Um, and uh, there are interest rate hikes, and but I hope the inflation can be tamed as well when it comes to uh, some of these challenges before our fellow uh, Canadians. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jess. So the Bank of Canada has raised its overnight rate to 3.75% from 3.25%, as we heard over the uh, newscast. Since March, the central bank has increased its policy rate six times, aimed at tackling inflation and bringing it back to to its 2% target. The bank predicts Canada could see a potential recession in the first half of 2023, according to its latest monetary policy report as well. Here is Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin from this morning on why the Bank of Canada raised interest rates today. Our decision today reflects several considerations. First, inflation in Canada remains high and broad-based. Inflation has come down in recent months, but we have yet to see a generalized decline in price pressures. Second and related, the economy is still in excess demand. It's overheated. Households and businesses want to buy more goods and services than the economy can produce, and this is driving prices up. Third, higher interest rates are beginning to weigh on growth. This is increasingly evident in interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, like housing and spending on big ticket items. But the effects of higher interest rates will take time to spread through the economy. Fourth, there are no easy outs to restoring price stability. 
We need the economy to slow to rebalance demand and supply and relieve price pressures. There are no easy outs. That's uh, Tiff Macklin, Bank of Canada Governor, governor uh, talking about the rate increase uh, today. Joining me now, uh, CKNW Business Analyst, Michael Levy. Hello, Michael. Well, hello, Jazz. <laughs> I like the way uh, Tiff Macklin uh, made that announcement. Very calm, but boy, the, 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 the announcement itself just ripples through the economy so quickly. I'm just looking at the numbers here. By this afternoon, the Royal Bank of Canada, CIBC, TD Canada Trust, and Laurentian Bank of Canada all announced they were increasing the prime rate by 50 basis points as well to 5.95% from 5.45% effective October 27th. Uh, Were you expecting the 50 basis point increase or were you thinking it was going to be even higher? I thought it was going to be higher. I thought it was going to be 75 basis points. And, Jazz, that was the consensus throughout the economic and banking communities. Uh, We all thought 75 basis points. But there's a big message in here, him only doing 50 basis points. Still, as he said, he's worried about inflation and the big bite it's taking out of uh, consumers and Canadians and the uh, the effect on the Canadian economy. But uh, he did 50 because... He's worried about the economy, so they're still going to raise rates. They still have the same targets, but we think now he's going to do it slower so as not to knock Canadians. He's knocked them down. He doesn't want to knock them out, and uh, 75 could have been the start of that. And now my guess, I'll go right on on a limb Uh and go the other way. They might do 25 basis points in December instead of 50. But that doesn't mean they're not going to keep going up. 50 would probably be expected now. But it's just going to be a little less instant pain but over a longer period of time. Now, inflation remains elevated at 6.9%, uh, with the bank seeing no meaningful evidence, I'm told, uh, uh, obviously, if it's easing in the near term. Um, you know, the, when you go from 0.25% to 3.75% when it comes to interest rates, I mean, when was the last time we saw even 375 I'm just trying to think back. Was that around 2008 or before then? Yeah, exactly. That's a, it was in that time frame, the last recession, and I said the last recession because I'm expecting, and I, it's just not me, uh, we, we are expecting another recession. He only used the word recession once in all of his uh, press conference and uh, in, in the report that accompanied the rate hike. But, uh, boy, it's understood we are going into recession next year because they've cut their growth target, uh, their, their, their growth target that they put out in July for Canada, for Canadians, for the economy to grow was halved. It's half on this rate hike than it was in July, and that's simply four and a half, five months ago. Hmm. Uh, you were mentioning uh, another rate increase potentially in December here. Do you expect that to be the last one, or could we expect more heading into 2023? Oh, Jazz, not at all the last one. Um, I think now they've extended their period of uh, when they think the economy or or when interest rates will meet that 2% level. They didn't come right out and say it, but we could be all the way through 2023 and into the first part of 2024. Uh, inflation is just, it, it, it is a monster. It just is something, I mean, that that is one of the key areas that the Bank of Canada concentrates on, and that's keeping prices in tow or inflation, the rise in prices, in tow. And that's that's their basic focus, and they won't be taken from that focus 
regardless of the political pressures that may be applied right now by conservative leader, party leader Pierre Polyev and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Both of them are after the governor of the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada is an independent institution and does not get mixed up with politics. And I think, my opinion, Jazz, politicians of all stripes should really realize and uh, uh, go with that. Uh, it, it, there, there's just no other way to attack it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we had a guest on last week uh, saying that they represent everyday Canadians. They held a, a small protest at Bear Creek Park in Surrey saying that the, the government has to send a signal to the Bank of Canada to slow down. Now, I, they say they represent everyday homeowners. Many people say, look, they represent people who have leveraged themselves uh, buying second, third, fourth rental properties. And uh, they're in trouble now because they leveraged themselves to that point. Um, do you expect bankruptcies to be heading, going up significantly in the, in the next six months to a year just because of what we're seeing? I mean, I'm just shocked at 3.75, as you say, another one expected in December, potentially more next year. There is going to be a point where, you know, this is going to, this is already hurting Canadians, but if you have a variable rate mortgage or if you have to renew next year, it's going to be a huge shock. It is. Uh, just a couple things. First of all, uh, um, I, I believe those Canadians who are interested in Canadians, um, there was, there's a selfish self-interest in there somewhere, and I think you nailed it. It's the position that they particularly are in, and um, I think there is going to be more bankruptcies, but far less than what we saw in the 80s. That was horrible. And in the 90s, by the way, I lived through both of those. And uh, 2008, we are going to see it because uh, people uh, uh, bank on interest rates being at a certain level, and certainly they can fluctuate. But uh, there are people who have got mortgages that are one or one and a quarter or one and a half percent that they got a year and a half ago that in three and a half years, uh, they may be, may be triple that. And um, people aren't making triple what they were making. Their disposable income isn't triple. So yes, there are going to be casualties. The Bank of Canada is just trying to do it so there are fewer casualties and Canadians are insulated. And today was the ideal example of going 50 basis points instead of 75. It, it, it deserved to go 75. And now, as I said, there's some talk about 25 basis points in December. And by the way, the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to be, in my opinion, exactly the same, probably only uh, uh, bumping 50 basis points where they should be bumping 75 also. Well, uh, it is often said, may you live in interesting times, and we certainly do, <laughs> <laughs> Michael. It is, uh, I mean, it really is interesting when you, you know, 6.9% inflation, 3.75% now at the rate, and as you say, it's going to continue to go up even next year. So uh, it is a challenging time, that is for sure. Michael, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thanks, Jazz. British Columbia Premier-elect uh, David Eby this week unveiled his transition team as he prepares to take over from John Horgan. The team has been co-chaired by former NDP finance critic, uh, finance minister, sorry, Carol James, and First Nations negotiator Doug White. Mr. Matt Smith, who ran Mr. Eby's leadership campaign, will serve as chief of staff. Uh, no date has been yet set for me, Mr. Eby, who was acclaimed as NDP leader last week. Uh, in regards to taking over, Mr. Eby, uh, in the last hour or so, met with Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin, uh, and he joins us now. Premier-elect Eby, welcome. Thanks, Jazz. Good to be here. Hey, good to have you. Now, I know uh, I don't want you to spill the tea uh, after having tea, but can you tell us <laughs> what, what uh, you and the Lieutenant Governor talked about? 
we had a great conversation about uh, about her background before becoming Lieutenant Governor and my background before uh, becoming Premier-elect. And, uh, and most importantly, she uh, asked me um, uh, if I had the confidence of the House and if I would form government. And I said yes uh, to both questions. And uh, so she invited me to form government. And and that was the both the the ceremonial and uh, requirement for uh, for me to officially become uh, premier designate. So it was a, it was a big afternoon. Uh, and so there's no exact swearing in date yet. Uh, no, we're working on that right now. Uh, my uh, goal and my hope is to be uh, in the legislature before the session is over for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm hopeful to get uh, some legislation uh, in place on uh, the priority areas that I know British Columbians are concerned about on housing, public safety, health care, and uh, sustainable economy. And uh, and also, it's important to be accountable to the legislature. So uh, we're working on that. Usually, uh, when a government is transitioning from one uh, uh, leader to another, uh, it doesn't happen when session is underway. So it's a little bit unusual, but it's uh, it's uh, a time that I'd love to be there uh, as premier, and I'm, I'm excited about that potential. Uh, will you have legislation written up by uh, by that time to introduce in, 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 in the legislature? Uh, I'm working with the team right now. Uh, obviously, um, uh, there, were, there was work underway on, on some of these uh, pieces, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, working with the team right now so that uh, hopefully we can introduce, uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, government under my leadership can introduce uh, that legislation uh, in this session. And uh, that's my goal. And that's what we're working on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we expect, uh, I mean, every leader that is chosen uh, chooses his team, his priority, uh, their priority areas. Can we expect the cabinet shuffle um, uh, by the end of this year? Well, right now the and uh, and it's uh, it's it's quite a process to be. I mean, I had some uh, significant files that uh, Premier Horgan entrusted me with, mm-hmm. um, but it was just a few files in government. And so right now I'm getting briefed on all of my colleagues' files and uh, and uh, issues facing the government, uh, where our economy is at right now, and uh, and what major events are coming up uh, in the next few uh, weeks and months. So that's uh, consuming a huge amount of my time. I'll be meeting with each of my colleagues individually uh, to talk to them about where our government is at and where we're going and what their hopes and priorities are mm-hmm. and using that information to make any decision about uh, cabinet roles or otherwise. But uh, but that's a bit down the road right now, uh, just uh, trying to get everything in place to be able to join uh, the team in the legislature before the end of the session. You have been part of a government now for five years. It's not like you're coming in fresh and brand new, as, as you said. Uh, you've been, um, in many ways, bringing in legislation to to um, uh, to implement uh, to implement what the government promised it would do uh, under its mandate. Um, are you going to be at this point? tinkering in regards to legislation that deals the pre- deal with the present situation in regards to public safety and uh, climate change and housing? Or are you looking at being a premier at this point, bringing in significantly more legislation that would overhaul what's already being done widespread? Are you going to widespread, you know, in a widespread manner, overhaul legislation? Or is this about um, improving legislation and perhaps even tinkering, uh, tinkering with legislation rather than bringing in much bigger change? Mm-hmm. Great question. So I'm uh, completely committed, as are my colleagues, uh, uh, just as Premier Horgan was, to delivering on our commitments to British Columbians that were made in the last election uh, and, uh, and, and making sure that we follow through on those promises to British Columbians. But obviously there are issues that have come up uh, as we come out of the pandemic that need to be addressed as well. And uh, the housing situation has, uh, has certainly gotten more complex and, and problematic, especially for people with uh, 
a decent income who mm-hmm. are just looking for a place to rent or buy. And so uh, we'll, we'll need to shift gears on that. And you'll see a bigger emphasis from our government on middle class housing uh, and our involvement in making sure we deliver housing for people uh, who, who earn those decent incomes and, and just need a place to live for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see the, the public safety issue and the, and the disorder and challenges in downtown cores related to mental health and addiction. I mean, you're just blocks away in the studio from the downtown east side of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are smaller versions of those kinds of challenges in communities like Terrace and Trail and Kamloops. Uh, so um, you'll see uh, from me uh, an increased uh, focus on uh, public safety and uh, through two perspectives. One is the safety of the people who are out in the streets and making sure that they have the care and support that they need, uh, but also for, uh, you know, for seniors, for uh, families, for people. Uh, uh, um, people uh, uh, walking alone at night that they can feel safe and comfortable in every part of their city um, is a big priority uh, for me as well. And then finally, healthcare. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, uh, our healthcare system and and the system across the country is under remarkable strain. So uh, people will certainly see me continuing to advocate as Premier Horgan did to the federal government, uh, but also um, uh, doing all we can to support those frontline healthcare workers. Uh, to make sure that British Columbians, when they go to the hospital, that they get the care they deserve, uh, and uh, and to um, make sure that people have access to that uh, family doctor care that they're looking for. So, uh, uh, big priorities, Jazz, uh, and uh, and uh, issues arising that we need to address, but um, but uh, similarly committed to what we promised in the last election. I just want to go through each single one very quickly here. In regards to the public safety, there's, as you said, issues of just being everyday folks feeling safe. At the same time, there's about mental health and addiction issues. Um, are you looking at a poten- potentially reestablishing a wide-scale, large mental health facility like Riverview, opening up a facility like that uh, under your leadership? Well, I think I think there's a significant uh, need and opportunity for us to provide uh, mental health support, addiction support. Uh, before somebody hits the state where um, they're involved with the criminal justice system or uh, in, a, in a, a delusional state or otherwise ill, uh, victimizing somebody else in the community. So making sure that we have those uh, abilities for a physician to be able to assess someone and if they need that support that they can get it uh, is going to be a critical piece of this. Uh, it's the most uh, challenging uh, component of responding to public safety because you know, when you're talking about providing uh, addiction support, mental health support for people, you need the professionals that can deliver that. You need the space uh, for them to do it. Uh, and uh, and so uh, looking for those opportunities where we can move quickly on those issues is going to be a huge priority for me. In regards to housing, uh, are you willing to step on the toes of municipalities? Because a lot of the roadblocks that we see, the bottleneck is at the municipal level. And you're certainly my sense of listening to you here and seeing you in the legislature. Um, you're the kind of guy who doesn't mind picking a fight occasionally if you think it's the right thing to do for the greater uh, public good. Are you okay bringing in legislation that may, as I said, step on the toes of municipalities? Uh, One of the really neat things um, that came out of the recent municipal elections is uh, uh, city councils and mayors. I've had a number of meetings with them, just from uh, cities as as big as Vancouver and Surrey to to smaller uh, uh, cities across the province. Uh, and, um, and, and the mayors I've talked to are committed to delivering on housing. And so uh, my hope, actually, is that we'll be able to have that partnership. They, they feel a strong mandate from their communities to deliver on uh, more housing faster. And as, uh, as Premier, 
uh, I'm committed to putting the, the pieces in place so that they can be successful in delivering that mandate uh, for their constituents, for the communities, for the people who need that place to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I'm I'm really heartened by the tone and uh, and the constructive nature of the calls that I've had with these local leaders, and I can't wait to work with them. Uh, and uh, and certainly, um, you know, uh, it's the responsibility of the province to ensure that there's housing, uh, and that uh, we're meeting the population growth that we have. Um, because if we don't, uh, it's huge cost for community and huge impacts on people that are looking for a place to live. Uh, but I feel like I've got a lot of good new partners across the province to work with. Uh, final question to you. Uh, do you still uh, maintain that there'll be no early election and the next election in British Columbia will be in the fall of 2024? Yeah, as I've been across the province, I met with people who are sympathetic to our government and people who aren't. Uh, party members and non-party members uh, as part of the leadership campaign, mm-hmm. I didn't hear one person ask for an election. They just want us to deal with the issues of the day, and uh, and I'm committed to that fixed election date. Well, uh, David, uh, it's always been uh, great to have you on the show, great to have you on the show today, and look forward to having many more chats with you uh, as you uh, implement some of the legislation you've been talking about. And I guess the next time we talk, I will uh, address you as Premier. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, I look forward to that conversation, Jazz. See you. All right. Films. Let's talk about films and movies. Films reflect the tastes and values of the period in which they are made. We can trace the changing status of women, evolving ideas about masculinity, war, crime, journalism, and or what our government's doing, or anything else, by Hollywood treatments over the decades. So when historians look back at this glut of superhero flicks, what will they say about us? We are truly living in Hollywood's comic book age, a global obsession super of superhero movies uh, that are seen by hundreds of millions of people, of course, and arguably, arguably the most consumed stories in human history, if you think about how popular uh, they are. Now, James Cameron, a Canadian director, James Cameron, who, of course, is the director of the original Avatar, and the new Avatar will be coming out uh, this December, Avatar The Way of Water. He joins the ranks of celebrated directors like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, and Ridley Scott, uh, who have something to say about the superhero genre. Now, he recently spoke to uh, the New York Times, and he said, listen to this, is when I look at these big, spectacular films, I'm looking at you, Marvel and DC Comics. It doesn't matter how old the characters are. They all act like they're in college. They have relationships, but they really really don't. They never hang up their spurs because they're kids. The things that um, really ground us and give us power, love, and a purpose, he says. Those characters don't experience it, and I think that's not the way to make movies. Well, guess what? That's war in the CKNW newsroom, I tell you. We had a significant conversation about uh, uh, Marvel and DC Comics, and joining me now to talk about uh, superhero movies and whether or not they're just, it's time for them to go away, is our show contributor, of course, John Jang, and uh, producer of this show, Stephen Chang. John and Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Jazz. Hello, Jazz. Well, let me start with you, uh, John Jang. Uh, your thoughts on what uh, James Cameron had to say in regards to these superhero flicks, that they've just gone too far, they don't really have a purpose in the sense that they're very juvenile, and it's time for Hollywood and all of us to just move on. What are your thoughts? 
Uh, I, I would say that uh, he certainly knows what he's talking about. My biggest issue is that Hollywood is very risk averse these days. And that means they're going back to the well every single time, clinging to franchises that have clearly been very profitable, which is great for studios like Marvel and DC because we're getting two or three superhero movies like every single year. But it's also terrible for filmmakers and writers that actually have brilliant ideas, but can't convince the Hollywood executives to give them a chance. Like, let me ask Jazz you a question. When's the last great you, a movie that you saw that wasn't attached to a franchise, that wasn't a sequel, and it wasn't a reboot? Can you remember what film that was? I, I can't. And I love movies. And uh, right. I mean, I, I agree with you in that sense that where's this generation's godfather? And, I, and that's a high bar, of course. But uh, where's the story about family? Where's the story about uh, love? Where's the story uh, about uh, whatever it may be, the, 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 that great caper uh, that uses nuance and subtlety? You don't see much of that. Uh, let's bring our good friend Stephen Chang uh, on this. Stephen, uh, you just heard John. Your thoughts on uh, DC Comics and Marvels, is, has Hollywood just gone too far in one direction? Um, well, I wouldn't say they've gone too far in one direction. Yes, superheroes have taken over the movie industry, but with James Cameron saying that there is not much emotional depth to the characters or the movies in general, um, please tell me when the last time you've seen a movie in a theater that wasn't a superhero movie that generated this kind of reaction. So as you can tell with the emotional reaction from all of these people in these movies, um, we watched over 10 years of Marvel films and we were attached to these characters emotionally and just watched what just watch their development go through each of these movies to the climactic point that it's Avengers Endgame. So, yeah, they're not the same as other cinematic movies like Titanic or Avatar, which I argue is a Pocahontas ripoff, but <laughs> there, there's a lot more emotional depth to these movies than people think there are. But here's my question to you. How many of those uh, will be winning an Oscar? I would say zero. How many of those movies 20, 15, 20 years from now or 30 years from now when historians, film historians look back, are going to go, oh, did you see Affinity War? No, but we're still going to be talking about The Godfather. We still talk about Gone with the Wind. Maybe I sound like a, uh, you know, it's a highfalutin kind of uh, artsy kind of conversation, but these movies will not stand the test of time because at, at its core, it's not the story that drives them. It's the technology and the special effects. And the story, Jazz, that is where I disagree with you is because, like I said, these are 10 years worth of movies building up to one climactic event that is no, Avengers no, Endgame. No, no, no. I'm sorry, you're wrong. The stories are so shallow. I mean, to your point about the audience reaction, sure, that's an emotional moment because dead superheroes came back to life in that moment. Of course, there's going to be an uh, emotional reaction. But the stories themselves are shallow, Stephen. Good guy <gasps> becomes superhero. Bad guy threatens to destroy the world. Good guy has to overcome the identity crisis and accept their new role as this global protector. Bad guy loses. Rinse and repeat. Tell me, what's the difference in story arc between Marvel's Avengers and the Fantastic Four? There's it's a group of superheroes that save the planet and or the universe. Rinse and repeat. I don't see it being much more than that. It's two hours of great special effects, but there's nothing inherently new to the story. Mr. You Jang. look at other original films like Baby Driver. Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. Fight Club, mm -hmm. movies that have challenged us on an intellectual level to think a little bit more broadly about certain things, about good versus evil. These movies actually challenge you and convince you to think. Instead of just two hours where you're just sitting in front of a screen with all these hundreds of millions of dollars spent on special effects to distract you from the real truth 
which is that these movies are shallow. They're not as shallow as you think they are, John, because, for example, in Avengers Infinity War, no, nobody actually thought that half the characters would die in that movie and it left people hanging off their seat at the very end we're like what do you mean nobody <laughs> if you have read the comics you would have of course known that this John, was going to happen the original night, content is there the entire theater had a heart attack at that moment in that movie okay and let me talk about character development okay you watched let's let's go with spider-man for example okay there's spider-man homecoming uh, where he just started as a kid and he was starting to get more into the superhero community as Spider-Man, who's brought in by Iron Man, right? But if you watch each movie progressively, you can see how much he's grown. And by the time he got to Spider-Man No Way Home... But, but you see, the problem, Steven, is that when you say Spider-Man, I, I start thinking, okay, which Spider-Man are you talking about? The one with Tobey Maguire? The one with Andrew Garfield? The one with this kid now whose name has just slipped out of my mind because there's Tom a Holland, versions John. of them? Like, the fact is, we're, we're talking about a franchise that has gone on for a, such a long time. We've started to lose track of actually who's playing each character and yeah. why it's supposed to matter and they can't really come up with new ideas for that by the way to your point about audience reaction let me take you back 12 years ago when inception was in it was in the theaters at the ending when the spinning top was cut suddenly to black and the credits started rolling you don't think audience members had huge reactions to that moment not about that theater was no genius cinematography that again was based on a purely original script that you can't find in a comic book it's not a sequel and it's not a reboot i'm gonna jump in here and, and i think john you make a very good point here i mean when you, when you look at hollywood today there was well, you got to own the IP, which is intellectual property. So basically, you own the superhero so you can sell figurines, you can have a ride at Disneyland, and they'll make those big budget movies. And of course, uh, movie making is cheaper today because of equipment. So you have a, a sort of small budget movies and the big budget movies. What we're missing is that middle that where you spend 25 or $50 million. And it may 100%, be. 100%. Yeah, yes. on relationships. I mean, I, I mentioned um, The Godfather. The Godfather came out in 1972. So half a century ago. And we're still talking about it. We are not going to be talking about Affinity War uh, 50 years from. That's the difference. And sometimes when I've, I have gone to Avengers, and you know who's explaining the detailed nuances of a character or what another character, uh, maybe you know, a character uh, sort of showing up in the next movie when they, when they show them at the end of the credits. My 13-year-old son explains the nuances to me because I'm not that <laughs> interested. So he's going to explain it. He's excited. That's great. Like I guess I was when I was, when Star Wars was there. But the problem is Hollywood has walked away from that mid-tier movie, the mid-budget yes. movie that we used to, that drove Jazz, all of this conversation, right? You're nailing it perfectly. Hollywood yeah. is a microcosm of society right now, and the middle class is disappearing. And that's exactly what we're seeing with Hollywood, right? Like, Stephen, I'm not saying you're a bad guy for liking the superhero movies. They're engineered <gasps> to have good support. They're engineered to go and take your heart and, and win lots of money for the studios. Like that's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happened to those good mil, good middle of the run movies that actually made you think that but actually we, had, but we also have to say plots? that superhero movies, especially with Marvel in the last decade or so, they did change the game. There hasn't been any other kind of movie where you yeah, have they, multiple films in a shared universe, have other characters who you wouldn't even think appeared in another movie would appear in another movie, and that's, that's kind that's of like a new changing, status quo. That's not changed the game. They've just, what the game that changed is push out all the movies that we used to watch about everyday human beings with no superpowers and just dealing with daily life. That's what they've pushed out. But temporarily removing plot armor from certain characters only to bring them back at the very next movie is it's not to me changing the game. It's just changing um, one's expectations going into the films without actually changing anything. Like the, the, the superheroes all came back, except, of course, the dramatic loss of a certain superhero at the very end. I guess I'll just put in that spoiler there. But uh, look, at the end of the day, 
where I think Hollywood is going is a place where, again, they're very risk averse and they know movies like this make money. The Fast and the Furious franchise is going on for like the 10th film now. Oh, God. Somehow they went from a group of <laughs> California based street racers to a team of superheroes, in a sense, who can go and save the world again and again and well, again. When, when, you're jumping from, when you're jumping from one high rise in Dubai into the other high rise in Dubai, you've just, you've just, I, I understand escapism, but you've gone too far. Once again, relying too much on special effects. Uh, now, you, you know, between Steve and John and myself, this is our conversation this morning. <laughs> BC government is removing legislative barriers blocking Indigenous governments from exercising their own jurisdiction over child welfare matters, a change that is being applauded as an overdue break from the lasting structures of colonialism. Here is BC's Minister of uh, Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean, making the announcement. I have the great honour of introducing a bill that will modernise the Child and Family and Community Service Act and the Adoption Act. We've been working collaboratively with Indigenous peoples to put the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples into action. Today is about respecting Indigenous families and recognising the significant work and dedication of our Indigenous partners who made this possible. I am so honoured to be here today and I look forward to our first reading in the Chambers later. Well, joining me now is Mitzi Dean, BC's, children of, uh, BC's Minister of Children and Family Development. Uh, Minister Dean, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. Uh, in regards to this announcement today and, and the legislation, how would it work in practical terms? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Um, say, for example, um, the ministry receives a significant concern uh, in a report about a child or youth. The first thing that the ministry needs to do is find out whether that child is Indigenous. And as soon as the ministry is aware of the um, status of that child, then they need to reach out, uh, they need to find out what nation that child is a member of and reach out to that nation and talk to that nation about their laws and find out whether um, the nation has laws with regard to child welfare and, and, and um, child and family services. And so what needs to happen is the child needs to get the services that they need, depending on what the particular issue is. Um, and the ministry needs to um, find out from the nation if they're exercising jurisdiction. And if they have authority, then they will exercise that jurisdiction and they will provide the care and the safeguarding and they will uh, provide the support for that child and youth. They'll keep that uh, child and youth connected to their family, to their community, to their culture. We know that that is so important mm -hmm. and that really helps Indigenous children and youth thrive. And the ministry will be able to step away um, and the ministry will always be there and be able to offer support, but that child or youth will be able to stay connected with their, their culture and the, the laws exercised by that nation that reflect their values and their teachings and their culture will continue to inform the services and the support that that child and youth will receive. Uh, do these First Nations communities have the resources uh, to deal with the, 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 the challenges that are there? I mean, uh, taking a child in and dealing with the needs of one child, perhaps many children, still takes lots of dollars and time and support staff. Uh, are there a dollar, is there a dollar value to this or is this going to be separate dollars from the federal government? We've been hearing for a long time um, from nations that they want to exercise their inherent right to jurisdiction in relation to child welfare and child and family services. Um, and the federal act that was um, 
that was passed by the Canadian government came into force in 2020. And that really creates a pathway for jurisdiction. And the way for supporting the exercising of jurisdiction for nations is that the nations through their Indigenous governing body, can ask the federal government for a coordination table. And the the province comes to that table as a partner. And at that table, the nation, through their self-governance and self-determination, will really lead the process of creating that coordination agreement that will um, actually identify the the, um, jurisdiction that they're um, exercising and the way that they want to have services delivered in their community. And then a, a fiscal solution needs to be found with um, in agreement through that process with the federal government at the table and the provincial government there as well. So for each nation, it's going to be different. I think about um, I think about all the children and youth that I know across the province and um, indigenous uh, young adults who are leaving care as well, maybe moving back to community. It's going to look different for all of them because nations, you know, through their self-governance and through what their vision is for their children and families, they're going to create their own system based on their values and their culture and and their teachings. And the the province has also committed as part of the Declaration Act Action Plan to co-developing with Indigenous um, nations and leadership and communities a BC-specific fiscal framework that will support Indigenous jurisdiction over child and family services. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers here, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the census data from 2021 shows that Indigenous children uh, made up 54% of those under the age of 14 uh, in foster care, despite representing just uh, just over 7% of children in that age group. So they represent 54% of those in foster care. Uh, why is it collectively, and I'm not just the BC government, but in the Canadian government as well, why has it taken us this long to get here? Because BC, to my understanding, is the first province um, looking at this type of legislation. Why has it taken us so long to get here collectively as a society? Yeah, well, we know that for far too long, Indigenous children and youth have been overrepresented in the child welfare system. And since forming government in 2017, our government has been absolutely committed to reconciliation. We passed the Declaration Act, and in 2018, we actually changed provincial legislation to make improvements to the child welfare system so that the ministry would be able to support children and youth staying in their community. So, for example... Um, if a child or if a concern was raised about an indigenous child or youth, the ministry was then able to approach the nation that child or youth belonged to, and ask, is there is there an auntie, is there a friend of the family, is there someone who would be able to step in and offer some support in that particular situation, so that the child and youth can stay in community and connected to their family and their culture. Mm-hmm. And then the federal act um, came in and came into force in 2020, and so we've been continuing that work. We have worked in collaboration with Indigenous partners, with uh, First Nations leadership, uh, modern treaty nations, Métis Nation BC, rights and title holders, in order to really collaboratively work on the provincial legislation that needed to be changed because it really still contained barriers to the pathways of federal act created for nations to exercise jurisdiction. And what we wanted to do was work in partnership to remove those barriers and to support nations in exercising their inherent right to jurisdiction. And at the end of the day, that will mean that more Indigenous children and youth stay in their community and come back to their community as well. Uh, Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
thank you for your interest, Jazz. And I want to say a big thank you to everybody who has helped us in this work. Um, and we know we have a lot more to do, but this really has been um, a, a great achievement in collaboration with so many other people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Minister. Thank you. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.